0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Like the World podcast, and I'm your host, LT World. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a writer and author who's just deeply interested in controversial things, beliefs, politics, things like that. And on this channel, we just try to look at both sides of an issue. And today's going to be abortion, everyone's favorite topic. And we'll just look at who, who agrees with the idea, who's like pro-choice, for instance, or pro-life, and see why they uh, believe what they believe and how they defend it. And If you like what you hear, please subscribe and follow on whatever platform you're listening to, and you can check me out on Instagram and Twitter, and there'll be information and links in the description. And today, before we jump into the podcast, I do want to tell people that I do write books, and right now, a couple months ago, I published a book called For the Sake of Freedom. It's a great dystopian thriller based in the future, and it's about this The scientist who is set on this mission to basically destroy humanity because he wants to make sure that there's never a world war and apocalypse again, and he wants to make sure everyone's basically like robots, and another guy tries to intervene and stop him from committing this atrocity. If that sounds like something that would be intriguing to you, or if you like good old um, thriller, psychological thrillers, this would be a great book for you. You should check it out at ltworld.info. All right. Hey, I did want to throw out this disclaimer for this episode there are some sensitive topics that if you're a parent and you have children listening or something you may um, you may not want them to listen if you think this topic is too sensitive for them I just want to throw it out there for anyone listening all right now let's jump into it so today we are going to be talking about abortion you know the type of topic that you go to your Christmas family gathering and you just start talking about casually with your uh, different politically believing friends and family so this is going to be just the history. We're not going to get into the actual debate of whether or not abortion is morally right or wrong or pro-choice, pro-life. This is just going to be a history lesson and it's going to be a fun one. So hopefully everyone buckles up and keeps their emotions settled as we go through this. All right. So abortion, was it always illegal in the States? No. So it wasn't always an issue in the States, or at least it wasn't always a prominent issue. Political issue, and it wasn't actually officially illegal until the eighteen hundreds. So before about eighteen twenties or so, abortion wasn't really ever outlawed in any states. wasn't outlawed in the nation, and there were cases or reported cases of abortion going on, um, whether that be through some sort of like concoctions that people would drink, or um, whether that be sometimes like you know the beating of the womb or whatever it may be. To abort the child, so this has been going. This has been a practice for a long time, but it didn't become a real political issue until around 1820. So, in 1821, Connecticut was the first state to officially outlaw abortion, or at least put restraints and restrictions on it. And then it would be in around 1856 when the MAA, American Medical Association, um, strove after making abortion illegal. And then it was around the 1850s. Then once abortion became a political politically heated topic and it would eventually be outlawed and would eventually become illegal. So in about 1873, you had what you call the Comstock Act. So after 1850s, where this national issue was brought up, took about 20 years that led to the Comstock Act of 1873, which outlawed and restricted obscene things, which is a very broad and vague description of but essentially, what the law banned or restricted was birth control, contraceptives, abortion, and other sexual material, such as what you might call pornographic material. So, And this act was not changed until 1965 and was not, compl- was not outlawed or overturned until... Well, it wasn't completely banned until 1983. So the Comstock Act of 1873 was in effect for a long time and made it very difficult for people to distribute obscene things or to purchase obscene things as seen under the act. Now, of course, this didn't settle well with a lot of people. Some people loved it. Obviously, people in the more conservative end or your more um, staunch religious person, per se, would have appreciated this act. But a lot of your feminists, a lot of your more, I guess, open-minded people, liberals, whatever you want to say, they didn't necessarily appreciate this law because, the reason being, it was such a broad and vague law. And it didn't just target like abortion. It targeted many things in the sexual spectrum. So then, there were some people who cropped up during this time period who wanted to fight against this Comstock Act, wanted to fight against the cultural norms. And so between 1873 and 1965, an important woman named Margaret Sanger came into existence. So Margaret Sanger was a nurse In the early 1900s who primarily cared for low-income women who often got pregnant with children they could not afford to raise so she was constantly surrounded um, by these poor women who would get pregnant and because they didn't know how to they weren't able to get contraceptives because of governmental restrictions they weren't educated on how to prevent themselves from getting pregnant they were maybe they were taken advantage of or whatever so she was constantly surrounded by women who had unwanted pregnancies let's put it that way so being exposed to this and being more of the feminist circles she was a huge advocate for birth control and she really wanted people to be educated on contraceptives she really wanted people to be able to get contraceptives and since the government Since the government considered those things obscene things, or um, inappropriate things, they weren't really allowed to be sold, distributed, and there was a lot of restrictions on how you could educate people about sex and birth control. But Margaret Singer wanted to buck the status quo, wanted this to get changed, and being part, being um, a young nurse during the 1920s, when, you know, women gained the right to vote, she kind of had a boldness that came with her that she wasn't the only one so she opened up a she opened up different clinics during like the late uh like early 1900s like 1918 19 early 1920s she would open up these clinics now this was illegal Um, she was not allowed to actually do this but she would open up these clinics and then she would teach women about how to um, use birth control how to prevent pregnancies and um, sexual health and reproductive health and all these different things she would teach. And then she would, there was multiple occasions where she got shut down by the government, kind of got arrested or fined. And she was put into different situations where she was under attack by the society as a whole, but she also had a lot of supporters. So the, once she ever, she would open up these clinics, the communities would really flock to her a lot, especially the women. A lot of women would attend these clinics and be educated and they appreciated it. And they want more of it. But the Comstock Act said this is illegal, and a lot of states and government officials shut her down. So she ran into a lot of barriers and ran into a lot of issues in regards to getting her movement going. But as we, as a lot of people do know, Margaret Sanger would go on to help found the um, what's that called? She would help go find. Uh, she would help found Planned Parenthood in about 1921. So she was the founder of Planned Parenthood in 1921, which is still in existence to this day. So she did do something that lasted for a long time and had played a big part in the feminist movement and specifically in birth control and abortion. So what well, I didn't mention abortion. I just mentioned birth control about Margaret Sanger. What did Margaret Sanger actually think about abortion? So she wasn't a proponent of abortion in the sense that she thought, she thought it was morally evil. So Margaret Sanger thought abortion was morally evil, except for purposes of eugenics. Now, for anyone who doesn't know what that means, that means that she believed that abortion should only be used to eliminate or decrease the population of inferior races. In her case, she specifically was referring to black people, minorities. She was a racist. So, Margaret Sanger believed that abortion should be used to for eugenics and lowering the population of other races that were inferior to white people or who she thought was inferior because no race is inferior to another race but that's what she thought she thought otherwise abortion was wrong she thought it was morally evil for someone who was white to commit abortion for instance so even as of late um, Planned Parenthood admits that Margaret Singer was a racist and they're trying to kind of rebrand themselves away from her in those lo- in those ways all that side Margaret Sanger did start numerous leagues. She did start many different clinics. She started Planned Parenthood, and she really got the ball rolling for the Comstock Act to be challenged and overthrown down to road. And her persis- her persistence did pay off in the end. So, what happened then after this Margaret Sanger incident and also the feminist movement as a whole? So, as we covered Um, in the feminist history, a couple episodes ago, if you want to check it out, um, go ahead. It's a great episode. And we talked about kind of like the first wave. So the first wave movement happened during the 1920s, late 1800s. And then you go into the second wave around like the 40s, 60s era, somewhere around there is when the second wave happens. There's not any hard deadlines, but around that time you have the second wave. And the second wave is when you start fighting, when women start fighting for economic free, economic equality and abortion. And so during the, during the people, you, a lot of these feminists were fighting against the Comstock backs, like Margaret Sanger and other feminist leaders, which eventually came to what we would know as the Griswold versus Connecticut case in the Supreme Court around 1965. So as I mentioned earlier, the Comstock Act would be in effect until 1965 and then it would be changed and then it would be completely rid of by the 1980s. So this was the case that changed the Comstock Act, Griswold versus Connecticut. So the movement Sanger helped start, mixed with general feminist movement as a whole, helped bring this case to the court, and the premise of the case was that Griswold, an executive director of Planned Parenthood, helped provide contraceptives for married couples. However, Connecticut had a law that outlawed contraceptives for married couples. Griswold challenged the law, stating it violated married couples' privacy rights. So essentially, Griswold, who helped direct Planned Parenthood, was trying to educate and also give contraceptives to married people and so forth, but Connecticut had a very strict law on birth control, very strict law on contraceptives, and Connecticut didn't want there to be any any of this going on, specifically because of the Comstock Acts, which prohibited it and limited it. The Supreme Court um, chose in favor of Griswold, and they, they created what was called a zone of privacy. So the Supreme Court decided had a 7-2 to two decision and decided that the Constitution protects what they call a zone of privacy, specifically the privacy of married couples, by using some broad interpretation of the Bill of Rights. And when I say broad interpretation, I am saying that not from my own opinion. There's a lot of law review um, lawyers and stuff who say that this idea that the Constitution protects people's rights of privacy, specifically married couples or sexual privacy, is kind of just a kind of shot in the dark loose connections with the 14th amendment specifically and we'll kind of get into it with Roe versus Wade a little bit but all that to say this was the case that created what we would know as a zone of privacy and here was a here was a direct quote from one of the people who wrote down the the case summary and this was for the Griswold versus Connecticut case Would we allow the police to search the sacred precincts of marital bedrooms for telltale signs of the use of contraceptives? The very idea is repulsive to the notions of privacy surrounding the marriage relationship. That's a direct quote. So they thought the court found it repulsive. They thought it was awful that people would um, dig into the business of married couples um, and their sexual lives. So a zone of privacy was created around the bedroom. So in 1965, that happens. And now this leads us to Roe versus Wade in 1973. As we said, the Comstock Acts weren't eliminated, they were just reformed or adjusted. So no longer could you prohibit married couples from getting contraceptives. So birth control was more accessible at this point, due to this idea of the right of privacy, and um, the fact that people, married couples, have a right to sexual things. And also during this time, I'll just throw out there, during this time, you also had the introduction of like Playboy and stuff like that. So, the sexual nature of the country was starting to shift and the court was kind of reflecting the societal change in people's perception of sex. So all that said, in 1973, you get the case that everyone remembers and everyone ties to abortion, Roe versus Wade. So the epoch of the abortion history happened in 1973 when a single woman in her early 20s by the name of Norma McCorvey lived in Texas where abortion laws were very strict and she ended up getting pregnant. Having grown up in an impoverished area with little bunny, McCordy would struggle to raise a child. She already gave away two children for adoption and was not ready for a third, so she took the issue with Texas laws to Texas abortion laws in court under the pseudonym Jane Roe. Henceforth we get the name Roe versus Wade. So this young lady got pregnant for the third time in her twenties, unwittingly, and she couldn't she couldn't seem to afford, she didn't have much money. And she couldn't really afford going out of the state to get an abortion in states that were a little bit more lenient. So she took issue with Texas. Now, as I said, Griswold versus Connecticut established a zone of privacy. That precedent in that case would then be applied to Roe versus Wade, along with some extra stuff thrown in there. So the court used a lot of liberty when it came to their constitutional interpretation of privacy rights, as mentioned in Griswold and the right to due process, as mentioned in the 14th Amendment." So even Yale professor John hart Ellie, an abortion supporter, called it bad constitutional law because the 14th Amendment doesn't really deal with anything about privacy. If you... Uh, let me even just pull it up here and read what the 14th Amendment says. So the Due Process Clause goes as this, it's under Amendment 14. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And they apply that to the case of abortion saying that you can't deprive a woman of her right to over her body. So they take that clause to use as a defense for the right of privacy. They take the precedent set, established in Griswold about there being a zone of privacy within the bedroom, within sexual relations, which was specifically applied to marriage in that case, and so they said that due to the 14th amendment and due to due process, um, men and women alike have privacy rights that are defended by the constitution. Again, as you can tell, that's kind of a broad interpretation, but it's also a broad clause. All that said, by stating that women have protected right in the constitution of privacy, they argue that this right included their bodies. Therefore, they made the trimester standard to determine when a fetus is a separate entity from the mother's body, therefore determining when states can intervene legally. So this is where you get the whole trimester thing when it comes to abortion law in the states. So states cannot prevent abortions within what they call the first trimester. Um, The second trimester, government can regulate abortion, but not completely ban it. And within the third trimester, states are allowed to do pretty much what they want, except in cases where the mother's life is in danger. So The court says women have a right to bodily autonomy, bodily privacy, because of Griswold versus Connecticut and the 14th Amendment. And then later on, they just establish the trimester thing. And they kind of, there's not really much court or precedent that they use for that. They kind of just use some sort of scientific reasoning to defend that statement of why, why of the trimester, because of consciousness, pain, how how developed a child is, stuff like that. But following Roe v. Wade, there were many cases that popped up and cropped up about the abortion law, about abortion now being legal. Because in 1973, after that Roe v. Wade, abortion became legal, and a lot of states had to change their policies, and a lot of government officials had to allow for abortion. So following Roe v. Wade, you had Parenthood versus Casey, Gonzalez versus Carhart, Harris versus McRae, and other lesser-known cases that involved abortion, which all helped protect or just clarify the extent to which abortion is protected. With Texas recently passing the Senate Bill 8, which uniquely interferes with legality of abortion, it has been a hot topic again. So a lot of people know about the whole um, abortion law that was passed by Texas, which basically states that institutions and organizations can sue abortionists within Texas if they uh, perform an abortion on a woman, basically despite the trimester. So the government technically isn't getting involved, but allows for individual citizens to create civil cases over abortion by suing abortionists. It interferes and obviously makes it more dangerous for abortionists to perform their jobs. And that's kind of the whole point. And again, there has been a lot of back and forth with the courts and a lot of people upset over this law. And I'm really curious to see how it plays out. We're kind of making history right now, so we'll see how it goes. But that's kind of what's going on with Texas right now in regards to the whole abortion law there was senate bill eight so to conclude the issue of abortion is not going away anytime soon in consideration of what's happening in texas and i think these abortion cases will keep coming up and i think they'll continue to shed more light on the direction our nation is heading and obviously depending on people's opinions this could be a good a good future or a bad future depending on how you view on abortion But I don't think this issue is going to go away anytime soon. I think we're going to continue to have cases, and I think we're going to continue to see how this evolves over the time. But only the future will tell. Next episode, we are going to jump into the arguments about pro-choicers and pro-lifers. So we're going to look at how do pro-choicers defend their position on the issue, and how do pro-lifers defend their position on the issue. And then I'll just kind of express a little bit about my own opinion and which arguments I think make the most sense. And tune in for that one. It's gonna be a fun one. Um, I'm going to try to be as fair as possible as I normally try to be. And we'll see. uh, We'll see what each side has to say. So thank you for listening. If you enjoyed what you hear, again, please subscribe or follow. Uh, You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. And again, check out for the sake of freedom at ltworld.info if you haven't gotten it yet. It's a great book, and I highly recommend it for adult readers specifically. And so, yeah. So, now, friends, please go out there and light the world.